0: Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Now when somebody is teaching, whether it's a preacher preaching or a teacher teaching, or perhaps even a parent parenting, trying to make a point to their child, or a teacher making a point to their student, or a pastor making a point to the congregation, In a good lesson, even a lesson that has a lot of information. Perhaps, you know, there are you know teachers in this room recognize that sometimes in a class, there's some classes you have a lot of different information in the lesson for that day. Lots of information. Sometimes it's all about the same thing, sometimes they're just things they need to learn because you're reviewing a test or whatever it might be. A teacher is good to make sure that their students remember something from the lesson. Now, it is the responsibility of a student to go and study, but as a teacher is teaching, they want to make sure the students remember something. And that something, the thing that that the teacher wants to stand out, is usually pronounced towards the end of the lesson. It may be a summary of what's been said, or perhaps it's the most important lesson out of all of this to be learned. There are many different ways of explaining how much of what people hear or see is retained over time, but I think we can recognize from past experience ourselves that we don't remember most of what we're told. Over time, we forget. In three weeks, most of the things that I say today are probably going to be gone. That's not necessarily the fault of Man, it's not necessarily a sin. It's just the way our minds work. Unless we're taking copious notes and reviewing them on a regular basis, most of the words that I'm telling you right now are probably going to be lost in obscurity. That's just the way it is. It doesn't matter if it's a preacher. It doesn't matter if it's the best sermon on the planet. uh, It doesn't matter if it's the most important lesson in in a classroom. Most of what we hear is going to be gone we will retain some things. Sometimes, perhaps there's something that you still remember from a sermon that perhaps Pastor Dale preached decades ago. Perhaps there's still something you remember from something like that. But you do not remember all the details of all the sermons that you've ever heard in your lifetime. That's just not reasonable to expect of a human being. But, when teaching, a teacher is good To, at the end, make sure that the point is heard. The point is made. The thing that should be remembered should be pronounced towards the end. Make it memorable. I'm not always the best at that. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. I try to. But today it's not about me. Today we come to the the very end of Jesus' sermon On the Mount. The longest sermon that we have recorded in Scripture that Jesus Jesus taught. I'm sorry. Sorry teachers out there. (laughs) And we're going to see the point Jesus is leaving us with at the end of his sermon. The thing that if we remember something, we remember this. Now how long have we been going through the Sermon on the Mount? We're coming up here on a year of of me being here as your pastor. And when I started, we started in the book of Matthew. And we have been spending most of this last year in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a few weeks getting up to the Sermon on the Mount, but most of this past year has been spent going through the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember everything that I've taught you? Probably not. I don't even remember half the stuff that I said. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. If you were to ask me, hey, could you repreach that message you preached over here about divorce? Or uh, what what, what exactly did you teach about when when you were teaching on blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy? I'm not going to be able to redo that entire sermon just from my memory. And doubtless, we don't remember all the things that have been taught over the past year in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said a lot of things in this sermon. (laughs) A lot of things. If you just read it through on your own, it's like, okay, man, how am I supposed to retain all of this, even if you just read it through on your own, in one setting? And then I ask you, what did Jesus teach about in the Sermon on the Mount? You'll pull out maybe a couple handfuls of things, but then stuff will be forgotten, just because there's a lot of information, a lot of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Jesus knew this. I don't think that Jesus was teaching this to his disciples, to the people sitting there on the mountainside, Thinking, you know what, I'm going to teach this once and they're going to remember it forever. I think he recognizes recognized humanity. And I think that he, he, at the end of this sermon, is wrapping it up with a very important lesson that he wants us to remember. Because if we don't get this, nothing else that he said before that really matters. If we don't get what Jesus is talking about today, if we don't see the big picture, if we don't absorb this, these truths that we're going to be looking at, then the rest of it is really just a work that doesn't really accomplish anything. Because we can work and work and work. We can do all the right Christian things all we want all life long and still find ourselves in hell when we die. We can sacrifice a lot in life for the sake of Jesus and still end up burning in hell for all eternity. Jesus, This is what today is about. We can keep all the law and still burn in hell. So let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, and then we're going to end in verse 29. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name Cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let us pray, let us seek Lord's guidance as we go through this passage together. Lord, grant us your wisdom as we look into your word. Open our hearts to see the truths here, to not just understand them with our minds, or devote ourselves to them with our hands, but to see them with the eyes of our spirit, to see Christ lifted up, to see him, our true Lord and Savior. To seek him alone for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his own person. And we approach this with thankfulness that this Jesus has paved the way for us to have eternal life. He has lowered the mountains that stood between us and your kingdom, He has raised the valleys. That made it impossible to pass over to the other side. Lord you have done this for us through the blood of Jesus. For you care for us. Which alone is astonishing. That a God like you. Who could have his way with anything. And there would be no one to stand up against you. To say no. You can't do it that way. There is no one who can stand up to you. You could have your way with anything, anybody. You don't need to love us. You don't need to save us. You're not obligated to us in any way. Because you are God, you are our Creator. And yet, this is what you have done with your will a will that could have gone any direction whatsoever, you could have done anything. But this is what you did, you sent Jesus to die for us on the cross, so we might be saved as pitiful human beings who deserve nothing of the sort. And pray only, Lord, that we might see Christ high and lifted up, and that we might be astonished and confounded by your grace as we look into your word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. We see in this passage that we just read together that there's a truth that is very hard for us to bear. Because it seems to be in opposition to some things that we have learned in the past. And hopefully we'll see by the end of this message that there is some sharpening that can be done to our faith. We must not be um, deceived that the moment you prayed a prayer of faith, you confessed through prayer in a pew that all of a sudden you had perfect faith and that there's no sharpening that needs to be done to your faith. There's much growing that needs to be done. There's much purifying that needs to be done. And today, hopefully, we will see this happen in ourselves. We glean from this passage here that there are three things that do not guarantee eternal life. Let me read from this again. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord... Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. I mean, look at this person in this passage. Have you ever cast out demons? Have you ever worked miracles? Done fantastic things? We have a, sometimes, some days, we have a hard enough time just saying, Lord, Lord. as the, Accepting him as our master and our king to whom we owe our allegiance. Some days we have a hard enough time just saying that and believing it and walking in it. But here we see people who are saying, Lord, Lord, we've prophesied in your name. We've proclaimed your name. We have made the truth. Have you known? We've cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. The word for wonders there is the word used for miracles. Fantastic things. All done in the name of Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus say to these many? He says many will say this. Many. That's a concerning word. Many. Many. We always think of these people as those who are just, those pockets of people around the world. Those really extreme ones. But this many means a multitude, huge multitude of people. Are going to say this. This must, by the nature of the word, mean that this could be actually very close to home. One we see one thing that we see that does not guarantee eternal life is orthodoxy. That is in this case an accurate view of Jesus Christ. I mean it is something to see Christ as Lord. Some saw, see him as just a teacher, some see him as just a prophet, a good prophet, a good teacher. Some see him as a, a revolutionary who really turned the tides for for humanitarian, moralistic efforts. It is something to see Jesus Christ as Lord. Orthodoxy really, the word itself means right or straight thinking. You think of the word orthodontist. An orthodontist is someone who straightens or corrects your teeth. And orthodoxy is someone who has right or straight thinking. They believe... right things it's a person who claims what his you know orthodox can mean many different things depending on what circles you're from there are orthodox churches that are um, particular to different nations orthodox russian catholics things like that orthodox christian is simply one who claims what his church would claim to be right and correct teaching concerning jesus christ We have our set of orthodox teaching. Jesus here is referencing a group of people who accurately, rightly claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. But a faith that has high claims of a great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, yet as Christ contrasts, does not do the will of the Father, is a person whose claims are empty at best. For as we see Abraham, we're not going to go back into the Old Testament, but we're going to recall the story of Abraham, who is the father of our faith, and similar to Christ, there are many Christ figures who prophesy of what Christ will be when he comes. He is in a way a forerunner of our faith, showing us what faith is like. He reveals to us That it was his faith that was counted as righteousness, but not just a faith that claims a truth, but a faith that actually follows and obeys. We remember him as the one who left his home, Abraham. He left his home behind simply because God said to. When God promised that his barren wife would bear a child in their old age, past the time when any couple should be bearing children, barren or not, Abraham Believed him. He believed God for an impossible thing. The same Abraham willingly offered up this son of promise, Isaac, at the Lord's bidding to be slaughtered. Even though Abraham was well aware that murdering a child was immoral. And that a dead son would not bring the heritage of God that he promised to Abraham. Abraham. But Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness because he actually showed faith in the midst of these impossible circumstances. Not just by praying a prayer from the safety of a pew where there's no opposition or hardship or anything impossible. Many times our faith is too easy. We talk about simple faith, but there is a faith that is too simple. A faith that does not save. A faith that is not faith at all, really, but is simply a cognitive understanding of truths, and you just decide to go along with it. But there's nothing that is entered in. There is no redemption that has happened. There is no reconciliation with a with in this relationship with the Father of all creation. Faith is something that is simple. But we must be careful that we do not see it as too simple. Because the Father, the forerunner of our faith, Abraham, has showed us that his faith was true because it, tested, it stood the tests of the storms. It stood in the midst of impossible situations. It is written by many reformed theologians from the past that faith is yeah faith is by grace alone and not by works of righteousness that's not how we are saved i mean this is this is an undeniable truth that it is not the works of our righteousness that save us but it has always been true that true faith is always proven it is always shown. And this is not difficult for teachers in this room to understand. When I personally was in high school, my math teacher would always want me to show my work. There, was always, there would be like four questions on a page and big blanks underneath them. All right, show your work. Here's, you know, I don't want, I just want to see the answer. I want to see you show your work so that I know that you actually have it. So I know you actually get it. Why? Because it's one thing to be able to find the answer. It's another thing to be able to do it right. And for that answer to not just be something that you got out of the back of the book. Sometimes our faith, not necessarily, I'm saying editorially, sometimes a person's faith is simply something they got out of the back of the book. Just tell me the answers. And I'll just claim the answers. But there's no substance there. You don't actually have the faith. Just like the the math student who got the answer out of the back of the book. You don't actually know the math. You just got the answer the easy way. By looking it up in the back of the book. Or looking on the page of the person sitting next to you. Cheating. Do we have a cheating faith? Well, somebody told me the answer, so I'm just going to go with that. Someone told me what faith, what I'm supposed to put my faith in. So I'm just going to, you know, say that. How are you saved? How do you know that you're born again? Oh, because of this, 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 and this. I know all the answers. Because someone told me the answers. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's actual substance. Two, in Christ's sermon, We see that a bold, accurate, and public testimony of Christ does not guarantee salvation. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? They were out there telling everybody about Jesus, witnessing, telling the world what they know about Jesus and what they claim to believe about him. But when we look back in, the, in Numbers chapter 22, we're not going to dwell on individual passages here, but we find here the story of a man called Balaam. Are you familiar with Balaam? Now back in this day, there was a Moabite king named Balak who was afraid of the Israelites because the Israelites were becoming very powerful. They were a threat to all of the surrounding nations. Moab was one of these nations And Balak was the king of this nation. And he was afraid that Israel was going to come and destroy them. So Balak gets this scheme. He goes and finds this prophet named Balaam. And he says, Balaam, I want you to come with me to go and curse Israel so that I can have an advantage in battle. If you curse them and cause them to not be so good at what they do, Maybe I'll be able to stand a chance against them. So Balaam, I want to hire you. I'm going to give you riches beyond belief for you to come with me and curse Israel so that I can win this thing. And Balaam told Balak, not going to work. I know the God of heaven. I know the God of Israel. And I know that I will not be able to curse Israel because I know that God is for them. I know this to be true. I'll go out there. But I'm not going to be able to curse him. God's not going to let me. And perhaps some of us know what happened. You know, this happened a couple of times. Balaam finally gave in. He says, okay, I'll go with you. The money's good. He even asked God. God, can I do this thing? Can I go with him? To go and curse Israel? God finally said, do what's in your heart. So Balaam, it was in his heart. To go and do this thing. Even though Balaam knew he wasn't going to be able to curse Israel. And he goes out there. He actually. God puts it in his mouth. To bless Israel. He blesses Israel. Balaam gets furious with him. "I I hired you. I gave you all this money. So you could come and curse Israel. And here you are. Blessing. In the name of God. Balaam said. I told you so. But then Balaam also, because he still wanted earth's delights, told Balak, I'm not going to be able to curse them, but I'm going to give you a plan by which you can save yourselves. Intermarry. Let the people cross the borders and intermarry with these people. So still, it was in in Balaam's heart, even though with his mouth he proclaimed, the good God and his blessing over God's people for all those who oppose him to hear. Yet it was still in his heart to delight in the earth's treasures. And in his case, he worked against the will of God for the people of Israel. He did not seek the Lord's goodness, even though he proclaimed the Lord's goodness. Now, Abraham, in contrast, everything stood against Abraham. Everything stood against him. In all Israel, it was said of them that unless the Lord had been on their side, they would have not been a people. I mean, if you recount everything that created the nation of Israel, it's all because of God's hand. Otherwise, they would have been consumed centuries ago by other nations. They were the weakest of nations. They would have easily been consumed and wiped out. Unless the Lord had chosen them, they would... Israel, what's what's that? There's no Israel. There's only Palestine. That's what the world would be today if it wasn't for God's intercession. Abraham, against impossible circumstances, believed impossible things... From God. That's faith. Faith is not a creed. It was written by a theologian in the 1840s that Abraham's faith was a faith in life and therefore a faith in death. And without the faith in this life, faith in God for the impossible, there would be no proof for faith in death. Otherwise, he would just been left with a creed, a belief system of cognitively understood truths. These truths themselves do not save. God himself saves. Jesus' blood is what covers us. And frees us from bondage to our sin. Our understanding of knowledge does not do this. God does this. Knowledge does nothing. God does everything. We must understand this if we are going to know faith. And faith is always, and Abraham shows us this, that his yeah, his faith was accounted for righteousness. And his faith was both built and proven in life. If we crumble at everything, we have no real lasting faith. Is it not written in scripture that the corruptible must become incorruptible? But that corruptible must still be there. Our bodies will become glorified bodies. But first we have a body. For the sake of time, I want to move on here because this is a segue over into what I'm going to be talking about in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, if you'd like to look there. John chapter 6, we're going to see a picture of what this looks like. Starting in verse 1. And for the sake of time, again, I'm not going to read all these verses. But here, in John chapter 6, we see a situation where Jesus does an impossible thing. He takes some fish, some handfuls of bread, and he feeds over 5,000 people with it. Impossible thing. Miraculous wonder. We would all be astonished by seeing something like this. And at the end of this, in verses 14 to 15, he says, then, he says that, or it, it is written, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, he departed again to the mountain alone. Does this sound familiar? Like some. So there's a tie back to the passage we were just looking at in Matthew. There are many who will say to me, Lord, Lord. Truly, this is the prophet that is to come into the world. This is what they're talking about is the Messiah. They recognize Jesus. This is the Messiah. It's him. He's here. We're going to make him king. He's our Lord. An exact, an exact example of what we're looking at. They saw the works of Jesus. And they believed that this is the Messiah. They saw and they believed. But then we, we cross over here to verse 16 where now we enter into a situation where the disciples are in a boat. They went over towards the, <clears throat> the sea, towards Capernaum, and it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Verse 18, then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now they're in the midst of an impossible situation again. Jesus just did something impossible. Now he's doing something that's impossible. He's walking on water in the midst of a terrible storm. The, people, the, the disciples in the boat are scared to death. To see this figure coming towards them on the water. This doesn't happen. This has never happened. This must be some nautical figure of old. Some monster. <laughs> There's always superstitions about those types of things. It's impossible. It's life-threatening. Did you know that Jesus sometimes comes to you in that form? In a form that's frightening. In a form that looks like this could not be God. This could not be from God. This has to be of the devil. This has to be something that's against me. That's not for me. Have you ever been in one of those situations? An impossible situation that was terrifying. That was faith-shaking. And in the parallel passage of this in Matthew, we see not only that the people that the disciples received him into the boat, but when they first saw Jesus, what did Peter? What, do you remember what Peter did? He actually said, "I want to come to you, Lord. I want to come to you." <laughs> I mean, think about that. Is that what you would do? You're in a boat in the midst of this huge storm. Jesus is walking on the water. You're just confounded and confused. What is going on here? Oh, the first thing I could think of is I'm going to step out of this boat and walk on the water too. That's not the first thing that I would think of. I'd be with all the rest of the disciples just kind of in the boat, (laughs) waiting to see what happens next. Now, Peter shows us what faith does in the midst of a storm. It goes to Jesus. True faith doesn't just sit back and watch. It doesn't just wallow in misery and pain. It goes to Jesus in the midst of the impossible situation. And then we see a contrast throughout the rest of this chapter in John chapter 6. He gets to the other side of the, of the, of the, of the uh, sea and all these people that were just fed, miraculously, they've been looking for Jesus. They couldn't find him and all of a sudden they find him over in Capernaum. Jesus, how did you get here? And Jesus says in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He tells them the intents of their heart. And we must think of this. Because the people said, Lord, Lord, this is the Messiah. I want to make him king of my life. Jesus is telling them, you don't seek me because you saw the signs. You you don't seek me because of that. You, You seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You seek me because you just want to be satisfied. You want to be happy. You want to have hope and peace and delight. You don't seek me because of me. You seek me because of you. How do we seek Jesus? Do we seek Jesus because he's Jesus? Do we seek Jesus because he's, he is Christ, the forgiver, the redeemer. Or do we seek him because of me? Because he satisfies something in me. You know, this is something that I think about from time to time for my own sake. I grew up in a family that went to church. We were Christians. I was born into a Christian family. Sometimes that worries me. Because I sometimes it comes up in my heart and I wonder... Am I only like this because my parents raised me to be like this? Or have I really chosen this? Do I delight in Christ myself because he is is Christ? Or because I was raised to say these things and to believe these things? Or have I come to the age of accountability where I have chosen this for myself? Inside. Or am I only holding to these creeds in a creedal way? Believing beliefs. Because they've been in my mind ever since I was born. So it would be difficult for me to believe something else. If I were to walk away from the faith, it would be devastating to my life. So it's easier for me to just be a Christian. Do I believe because of Jesus or do I believe because of me? Because that's what's best for me. Yeah, nobody wants to go to hell. But that's just self-preservation. That's not faith. Yeah, hell, the message of hell is important for us to understand. It's most important for us as true believers because we don't want to see other people go to hell. But do we believe simply because of this instinct of self-preservation? So we'll believe the right things? Or do we believe because Jesus is Jesus? He is God. He is the Redeemer. He is the truth. Jesus spends the rest of this chapter saying hard things to the people like, you must feed on me. You must drink my blood. You must eat my body. And the Jews were taking offense to this. In verse 60, he says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? In other words, how in the world are we supposed to know what you're talking about, Jesus? You're not speaking to us plainly. How can we understand what you're talking about, let alone receive it? And when Jesus knew it himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you were to see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? In other words, are you stumbling over these examples? comparing my body and my blood to receiving all of me for who I am and not for who you are and what you want you want physical bread and wine but what you need is to eat of my flesh and my blood and they were like I don't understand what you're talking about and he says what are you if you don't if you're offended by this if this causes you to stumble these physical examples of spiritual truths, what are you supposed to make of it if, you, if I were to ascend to heaven right before your eyes, this spiritual wonder? What are you supposed to make of that if you can't even make sense of this example that I'm giving you? And he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are a life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Everything he is talking about, everything he is teaching is spiritual. It is not just for you to be pleased and satisfied. He is telling you, I am God. I am the one who has come to do this spiritual thing in you. To transform the insides of you, not just the outsides of you. The insides of you, first! The heart, the will, the spirit. I am come to cleanse you out, to get rid of all your sins. To transform you like the metamorphosis of a butterfly, where once you were this ugly, nasty-looking caterpillar, now you're a beautiful, gorgeous butterfly. And then it says... In verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Things got hard. Things got too deep. Too difficult. You're like, you know what? This isn't worth it anymore. It was really nice hearing Jesus' preaching. He said a lot of really cool stuff. He He was a better speaker than all of our scribes. He was a great preacher. He said so many wonderful things. But now when he is calling them to devote themselves differently, more deeply. Yeah, I didn't sign up for this. So they walked away and they were not with him anymore. And let's see what Peter says again. Jesus said to the 12, so these disciples were not the 12 disciples. Disciples were just people who were following Jesus and listening to his teaching and watching him live his life. There were many of those people throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. But the 12 were this inner circle of disciples. And he says to the 12 in verse 67, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See that? They know, they believe, and they will not turn away. Because that faith is so deeply rooted that there is nothing else for them. There is nothing else. Charles Spurgeon once said to preachers, If you could do something else, do it. Because the pulpit is only for people who cannot do anything else. And in a way, that's true for all disciples of Jesus Christ. If you could be completely satisfied doing anything else in the world then you are not a true disciple of Jesus Christ. If you could leave this all behind and be perfectly happy somewhere else doing something else, living some other type of life that had nothing to do with Jesus that was not seeking his kingdom go do it. Because this is not for you. The true Discipleship is too deep and wide for you. Go do something else. That's why the Lord sends us trials, tests. Sometimes he lets things get confusing to see who's true, to see who have the true sight given to them by the Spirit, to see, uh, I mean, Let everything else fade away. Only Jesus remains. He's the the real thing. Like, there is nothing else. I don't see anything else in this life that's worth going after. And trials and tests actually purify that within us. They test and they purify our faith. In the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the pain, in the change, in the sacrifice, Do you discover, well, you know what? I'm going to go the path of least resistance. This is too much. Or do we say, you know what? I have to walk through all of this. I have to because there is nowhere else to go except forward to Jesus Christ. He is the way. There is no other way. What else am I supposed to do? There's nothing else that I can do because Jesus is the way. Trials test that for us. That's why the Lord allows us to be bombarded with materialism. Are you going to go after it? Or do you have true faith? Are you going to be distracted by it? Are you going to be led away by it? To live in the town of Vanity Fair? To be consumed by its ways? Or are you going to keep going? Because Jesus is the way. That's the only path for me. All this other stuff is worthless. There's nothing there for me. So at the end of all of this, we see two groups of disciples. Those who follow him because he appears to offer a life that they are happy to live. But when things get too deep or hard or things change and it's no longer easy, they fall away. It's kind of hard to tell if you've never really gone through anything. Because that's how God Tests and purifies you. And if you haven't really gone through anything, then maybe it's because he has no interest in you, because you're not his child. Two, those who follow him because he is the one, there are those disciples who follow him because he is the one sent by the Father to whom they must cling to to be saved. And they will follow him no matter how deep, confusing, or impossible things might get. Remember those disciples in the boat. They were frightened. But then it says they were glad to receive him. They were frightened. On the verge of death. And they were satisfied in Christ. Not for the sake of food the sake of Christ so if you look back in Matthew chapter 7 we'll end with this Matthew chapter 7 he says in verse 24 therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them I will liken him to a man though a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. I want you to see two things. See, oh, see this first. Both people built a house. It looked the same. The house was the exact same. What you saw, what the building was the same as the neighbor's building can be a Christian, an orthodox person, maybe that's a better way of saying it in context of this message. An orthodox person believes all the, all the Christian things, does all the Christian things, doesn't do all the Christian things. There are some things that are, that are very much um, culture based. For instance, several hundred years ago, the church never thought drinking and smoking was wrong. Most of the pastors drank and smoked. Today, it's an abomination. So orthodoxy within the church kind of changes in different time periods. The way Christianity is to be played out. So let's say you you are you fit your time period, you fit your orthodoxy. You look the way you're supposed to look, you say the right words, you have the right answers. You have this house that looks the exact same as the person next to you. We believe all the same things. We do all the same things. We are against all the same things. Yeah, sure, there's a little deviation here. But just like because we're all individuals, there's going to be differences. But for the most part, our houses are the same. The big difference, the the only difference that matters, one's built on the rock and one's built on sand. Now, it doesn't really matter if there's no water beating against it. If there's no... Shifting, whether it's on a rock or on sand, as long as there's no, nothing happening, both the houses will be fine. But what happens? The storm comes, the winds blow, the water beats against the houses. That's when we see who's built on the right stuff, whose faith is genuine, whose faith is not genuine. You must have faith in this life that we're living if there is going to if it's going to take on incorruptible Peter's faith was not perfect Remember when he walked out on the waters he had faith he had the faith that got him out of the boat That's what the that's the important part He went to Jesus Now did he still end up sinking Yeah he did But Jesus went out and grabbed went down and grabbed him You know we're not going to be perfect and that's not at all what I'm trying to say here. We're not going to be perfect. None of us will be. Not while we live. But the corruptible must take on incorruptible, the Bible says. We're going to, but that faith has to be there. However imperfect, that true solid foundation of true faith in Christ alone, for his sake alone, must be there. One day it will take on incorruptible. But if there's not true faith there, then there's nothing to take on the incorruptible. You can't have a tree without a seed. The seed must be there first for the tree to then grow and bear fruit. And I have to ask you the question, what is your house built on? What is your house built on? Because if you're not honest with yourself here, I'm not going to have you raise your hand and tell me. Because you need to be honest with yourselves. I'm not preaching to the world out there so that we can tickle our ears and be like, yeah, everybody's wrong except us. No, you need to be honest with yourself right now. Be honest with yourself. What are you built on? Your house might look nice. Beautiful house. Great trimmings, granite countertops, hardwood, hardwood hand scraped floors. Beautiful. But what's it on? Well, one thing that you can look at is, what happens when the winds blow and the waters beat against you? To whom do you run? Or to whom do you run from? Who do you question? Who do you devote yourself to? Who do you cling to? What do you cling to? I mean, that's what the scriptures are saying. If your faith cannot even exist in this life, how, what in the world do you expect to have when you stand before God himself? With the burning, piercing gaze into the soul. How can you say you're going to have faith when you stand at the judgment seat when you can't have faith when something goes wrong in this temporal life? How in the world can you claim that? I'm talking to you, but I wrestle with this all the time myself. Because I want to be certain. Because this is an important consideration. You must consider it. With me. Because if you cannot have faith in this life, How can you say that you will have faith at the judgment seat when things are going to be far harder, far more painful, more piercing? Purged as though by fire, the Bible says. That's not fun. That's not satisfying. Mm, Man, I really have a hankering to put my hand in some fire. (laughs) Said no one ever. All of life is a parable. It's pointing to something spiritual. But just like Jesus said to the people, if you can't understand these physical examples, how in the world are you supposed to understand the true spiritual nature of things? If we cannot stand the tests in this physical life, how in the world are we ever going to stand the test when we stand right before God in the judgment seat after life? Our faith is if it is true, we'll take on the incorruptible and it will stand and it will last. But if it was simply a creed, a claim, because it was passed to you from your parents, from your social circle, from the people who felt you feel warm and accepted, that may not last unless it takes on trueness, takes on substance, which it can. Okay, I'm one of those people who grew up in the Christian fat family who found it easy to believe these things because it was always part of my upbringing. But I believe that the Lord has made it real. But what's the test? It's trials, the tribulations. And there will be many who do not last, who do not endure, whom the Lord will say, depart me from me, I never knew you. It doesn't matter that you did all of these things in my name. It doesn't matter what you sacrificed. Your faith was not true. What are you built on? And this is what Jesus leaves us with at the end of his sermon. And this will be the end of my sermon. This is what Jesus leaves us with. For us to consider. Because, okay, God doesn't like divorce. He doesn't like adultery. He wants us to pray like this. He, you know. What does that matter if we don't have the right foundation? We'll have a nice house. Nice building. But if we don't have the right foundation, if the faith is not genuine and sincere and true, then it will fall, and it will not last. The house will crumble and become nothing, be washed out to sea, and there will be nothing left. Pray to the Lord for guidance. Seek the scriptures that you may be found in true faith. Not just the holder of creeds passed down to you from other people. And when the, when the waters come, when the winds blow, remember this, that this is not just happenstance. This is not chance. This is the Lord sending you purification, a test. And take heart and step out on the water in this impossible situation and go to Jesus Lord, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you that you care enough to give us sharp words, that you did not hold back when the people came against him, that he did not alter his words simply because it could have sounded nicer and been more politically correct. He said what the people needed to hear. You have given us what we need to hear because this short life has vast eternal implications and you are concerned for us. Thank you for your guidance. And I pray that we would not find your teaching to be a stumbling block. But that we might find it to be life. And truth. As Peter said. The only way to go. In Jesus name. Amen.